0: If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at magicalmeetings.com. Today, I'm with Brian Ardinger, founder of InsideOutside.io and director of innovation at Nelnet, where he serves on the corporate VC team and leads the internal innovation efforts. He's also the author of the new book Accelerated: A Guide to Innovating at the Speed of Change. Welcome to the show, Brian.
1: Hey, Douglas, thanks for having me.
0: Oh, of course, it's so good to speak with you. I think it's funny because when I was first starting Voltage Control and first getting over, you know, imposter syndrome and getting out there and, and, and whatnot, I think you were one of the first podcasts that I appeared on. And so it's pretty awesome to come full circle almost six years later and have you on my podcast. So that's pretty pretty awesome.
1: Yeah, it's fun. It's I often joke that I was doing podcasts before podcasts were cool. I uh, then I continue to do them, and I always find great insight and always love to see the connections you make b- because of them.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, when I think about what I get out of my podcast and what you, I, I would imagine, get out of yours, it's very similar to the experimentation and learning that comes from the mindset of running a startup.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I started the podcast to tell stories about the portfolio companies that were going through our end motion startup accelerator and to start making connections for you know a group of folks that aren't always connected and what I found is that it just opened up a whole world of new thinking new ways of approaching problems and quite frankly accelerated the growth of not only my ecosystem but the, the ecosystem of the portfolio companies that we are you know building it for
0: so before we get too deep into it, I want to roll back a little bit and get into my typical opener, which was how did you get your start in this world of innovation and startups and, and helping people f- just embrace the speed of change?
1: Yeah, so I started my main career in the mid-90s with Gartner. I was based in Hong Kong, but did work all over Asia Pacific. And I was one of two consultants uh, building out that practice out there. And so we were working with some of the major uh, tech companies at the time IBM and Microsoft and HP and that and but effectively it was a startup environment you know we were kind of the lone outpost in the middle of Asia trying to understand tech and help our clients understand tech and through that process of kind of being out on the edge at the early stage of the internet and working with technology companies i I learned quite a bit about you know what does it take to not only kind of like introduce tech products and that, but like, how do people use these things and what's important and how does that play out in different cultures and that? And it always fascinated me. And it's kind of continued throughout my career, this focus on how do you learn quickly? And then how do you share those learnings? It also makes me think
0: about the, you know, when you mention cultures, it's like the idea of bridging cultures. And that's pretty central to the work you're doing, you know, when, when you're thinking about the corporate work and the startup work and how you connect them in different ways, because they live and breathe in totally different
1: ways. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you think about, you know, a corporate environment and innovation in a corporate environment, and it's it's kind of a foreign land, uh, very much like being out in the outpost sometimes, the people that are kind of doing innovation within a corporate environment, because, you know, their job is different typically than... Optimizing the existing business engine and business models that uh, have gotten the company where it is to begin with, and so maybe that's why I gravitate to the, helping people in that particular environment because it is like being on an outpost uh, and trying to to f- figure out the new, the novel, and the uncertainty around it. Yeah, it's interesting.
0: I was thinking about that term "outpost" when you first said it, and the fact that you were there helping Gartner kind of expand into a new market in a way that's very much living like a startup. And I'm curious how much you see that echoed in the work you're doing through Inside Outside, or because I I know you have a lot of peers that are working in innovation space. Do you find that this kind of like opening up new offices or going into other markets, is that a
1: tool people are intentionally using? Yeah, I'm not sure. I I think each company approaches innovation differently. And I think that's one reason why this innovation space is so challenging is because I think a lot of times people have different definitions of innovation and different approaches. And and quite frankly, there's no one silver bullet that if, if you just follow this path, you'll be innovative. And so I think it makes it for a very confusing kind of environment. And so a lot of times when I first talk to companies or even internal teams, I like to kind of set the stage of, you know, what does innovation mean to us, and how do, how are we going to define it? Because I think a lot of people kind of overcomplicate it, or they immediately jump to, I've got to come up with the next flying car, or I've got to invent the next light bulb. And while that certainly is innovation, and uh, th- there are transformational properties around it, my feeling is that innovation can happen at the lower level as well. It can be something as simple as, you know, finding an idea, seeing a problem, and then putting that idea into action to solve that problem and create some value from it. And if you think about it from that perspective, you know, anybody can have access and, and the ability to innovate. And I think, you know, one of my goals is to help people at any level, be able to empower themselves to be innovative and, uh, and make change and create positive outcomes. Yeah, it
0: makes me think about how the light bulb is always kind of the icon that's associated with innovation, right? Whereas perhaps the apes kind of evolving into mankind is more of a better icon, right? Because it's it's kind of uh, organizations evolving to the title of your book to match the speed of change so that they stay relevant and significant and potentially make people's
1: lives easier as well. I think it also allows you, if you kind of take a more broad approach, it allows more people to be involved in the process, mm. and it also changes the mindset around it because I think a lot of people get scared or, or frustrated because they feel like they have to have everything solved. And by default, innovation is going to be in an area where there's a lot of exploration and unknowns and uncertainties, and so you have to be able to dig through that and and be wrong. And if you have a mindset that's much more explorative or the, Hey, this is a side project I'm, I'm trying, or this is something I'm just looking at. It kind of relieves the pressure of having to have everything figured out. And I think especially in corporate environments, you know, people expect to have everything figured out because that's how they execute and, you know, build the thing that they're currently growing. But when you look at something new that, you know, it, that's not the case. You're You're constantly trying to figure out assumptions that you thought were true or not, you know, it's like picking up a guitar. You're not going to be able to play Stairway to Heaven the first time you do it. You got to wander through that.
0: Yeah. It makes me think about goals and incentives and how goals and incentives that are applied to kind of core focus of a corporate or any kind of organization that are not going to serve us well if we're trying to embark in innovative kind of activities and maybe setting those goals and incentives differently. And to come back to your stairway to heaven analogy, (laughs) there's a lot of research that shows that you should give yourself medium size or these interim goals. Like, can I play the the, the first five notes, right? Right. And let's celebrate (laughs) that I've played the first five notes. And so, like, and it makes me think too about the outpost, right? You probably had different goals and incentives and rewards than, the folks here in the U.S. that were at Gartner, right? There were certain yeah.
1: things that you were trying to accomplish. and It was interesting just seeing, even in that particular environment, kind of the questions that we'd get. So, we'd have a company in the U.S. Uh, working with our U.S. partners, and they'd you know reach out to us and say, hey, give us a market analysis on Asia. <laughs> uh, and it's like, well, first of all, Asia's not a country. <laughs> uh, and then you then walk them through, of, you know, <laughs> what are you actually trying to figure out? And just the context, setting the context, I think, is so important, uh, and especially in areas where a lot of things are unknown and uncertain. I was going to say, getting back to the your question or your th- thoughts on incentives as well, I think a lot of times, uh, you know, we incentivize innovation, uh, again, looking through the lens that we know everything. So again, if you think about corporate environment, corporations have gotten there because they figured out a business model. They know who their customers are. They know where the products are they, for the most part, are executing and optimizing things that are are fairly well known. As soon as you jump into the innovation, exploration, startup realm, you kind of have to throw a lot of that out the window because you don't know what you don't know. And so if you start applying metrics and incentives the same way, it's not going to work. You know, if you start looking at a startup and saying, you know, what's your revenue today and the startup doesn't even have an idea who the customer is yet, uh, you're going to measure the, the, the impact differently. And so I think understanding where you are in that—are you in the exploration mode, or you're in the kind of exploitation or growth mode—I think are important. And and I think a lot of times we get hung up in whatever mode we're in at focusing on that and not realizing where we are in the path.
0: Yeah, you know, kind of coming back to lean, and I think about some of the original Japanese mm-hmm. kind of systems, and specifically kata. And while there might be some big prize. At the end of this big journey, we can't let our incentives and targets be associated with that. We had to find these like shorter term, nearer term things that these footholds we can get to. And I'm curious, like, are you having examples of, of, of how you've seen that play out either in the communities you've been part of or, or even at Nelnet?
1: Yeah. So, like, when I've worked with startups at a startup accelerator, uh, you know, as we were trying to work through, you know, what these companies were building at the early stages, a lot of times, you'd have to sit down with the founder and and have the discussion. And they would be trying to solve problems that were three months, six months, two years down the road that may or may not ever matter, if they didn't get the first problem solved. And usually the first problem is, does anybody care about what you're building? You know, is there a pain point big enough that people are going to pay you to solve? And so I think that's the first thing you kind of have to look through. And then, again, trying to understand where are the riskiest things you have to de-risk and or figure out on that path and trying to prioritize the right things you should be learning the fastest I think goes a long way to moving you down that path knowing full well that you're not going to be right all the time
0: yeah that's something that you've kind of alluded to a couple of times now this idea of you're not going to be right all the time and being comfortable which is being wrong and you know, certainly in a lot of the workshops we do, there's kind of a love affair with being wrong sometimes, right? Let's let's actually create some moments where we create safety around that. And I'm kind of curious how that's shown up in your work or just encouraging people to be okay with that.
1: Yeah, you know, that is one of the most difficult things, especially in a corporate environment, I think, to get people uh, to have that zone of safety. A lot of times when we talk to um, people within our organization like a Nelnet and we ask them to you know, come up with a brand new idea. We, we try to protect them as much as possible from having to present their idea until they have some evidence around it and have them think differently about that early stage so that they can kind of explore and, and go in a different direction than their original idea. So we have a process we, we call one, two, three, four, and it's really an incremental way to take an idea and, and, time box it, and, and move it forward. So the way it works is it's uh, one minute, two hours, three days, and four weeks. And so those are kind of the arbitrary uh, boxes of, of time. And what you do is uh, anybody within the organization should be kind of one minute a day thinking of you know new ideas, new problems they run into, new opportunities. And whenever you run into those things, you should kind of jot that down. And what you'll end up having is a kind of a list of your one minute ideas and these one minute ideas at some point you'll start thinking hey, this one minute idea I had a couple weeks ago, I keep saying it or uh, it's still in my head and, and I keep circling around. So maybe that's a signal and some evidence that I should spend a little bit more time digging into it. So you take that idea off your one minute list and you say, I'm going to give it two hours and I'm going to, in that two hours kind of map out what do I know about this problem or what do I know about this opportunity, you know, uh, who's the customer? What's the problem? How often does it happen? What do I know about the competition? How big is the market? Those kind of things. And you may or may not have answers to all those questions, but at least you start kind of putting some bones around it. And then at that two hour mark, uh, that's also the time where you should start engaging with that idea with other people. So maybe you bring in a couple of your colleagues and say, hey, you know, I've thought about this particular idea, it's not fully fleshed out. I'd love to get your feedback on it. What have you seen in the space? You know, what do you know about this particular uh, issue that we're talking about? And then after that 2-hour block of time, you can make a check and say, did I find additional evidence or is there something in there that makes me think that I should spend the next chunk, 3 days, you know, kind of exploring or moving this idea forward? And if you find evidence, maybe that three-day mark, maybe that's when you go out and do some customer discovery. Maybe you start working on a prototype. Uh, and you kind of, again, try to figure out, what do I need to know to move this idea forward so I feel more confident that I have something here? At the end of the three days, maybe you decide to take a four-week bet. You bring in a partner. You build out the prototype. What you know Again, the, the specifics could be different depending on what idea it is. But the whole process is really designed to incrementally de-risk that idea and get you more comfortable as well as getting the early stage evidence so that by the time you get to a four-week ask, you can go back to somebody and say, hey, I've done this, this, and this. Here's what I've seen. Here's what I've learned. And here's why I think a four-week bet is possible. Or here's what I need to, to run the next set of experiments. So it gives you both permission and it gives you a, a way to kill the ideas fast as well as uh, move the ideas forward that are showing some type of traction.
0: You know, there's a few things that I love there. One being that it reminds me of the, the classic stage gate kind of mm-hmm. innovation approach, but can condense down to where it can be run individually. Yes. And outside of any sort of orchestrated kind of company policy, it really pushes things to the edges so yeah. people can kind of have the autonomy just to try things and move without getting approved for some stage or whatever.
1: Exactly. And so when you get to that four-week stage, maybe that then it goes into your more of your traditional stage gate where you have a growth board or something like that. But by then, you have, again, you have some uh, incremental markers and incremental evidence that you can present to say, this is why I think this should get a little bit more resources, time, money, effort around it.
0: Yeah, I really like that too because I imagine that it probably reduces the amount of noise that the growth board has to see yes. because people are already start to practice some of these things and get better
1: clarity on what they're presenting. Yeah. And what we find is a lot of the ideas die pretty quickly mm-hmm. and, or they get to a two hour mark and they find out there's a ton more <laughs> that has to be explored. And then it can go back to that person and they can determine, do I really want to spend additional time researching this, these five things that came out of that two hour discussion. Uh, and so it, it kind of, you know, self fulfills which particular ideas should be pushed forward. You know, if you have an idea and it's it's really passionate and, you've, and you're seeing evidence around it, you've got other people engaged and talking about it. Those are the ones you want to double down on and, and say, okay, what's the next thing we've got to learn? What's the next time box around that to learn that? And then after that, let's stop and, and reevaluate and see where we're at. Because I think a lot of times you get to a stage gate and it's like, okay, one, two, three. Okay, here's a million dollars in a year. Come back and tell me if it worked. You know, it's much more about let's figure out what that next stage of learning is, what's the next amount of resources we need in that learning stage, and then don't forget to stop at that end of that time frame to reevaluate and see if we're still on the same track.
0: Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. It, it also makes me think that even the psychology of this idea that I'm going to have to do some work will make me evaluate my idea more yes. thoroughly, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, right. and. Uh, Reminds me of, uh, my friend recently asked me uh, for advice on buying a PC because uh, their their son wanted to play games and maybe learn coding, and they were a Mac house. And I was like, well, yeah. here's some stuff to think about, but maybe you should have him do some research and find out what he needs and pitch you on why that's yes. the right machine to get. <laughs> and so she's like, that's a brilliant idea. So the next morning she tells him, give me a presentation by Friday. And he said, can we just get an Xbox? <laughs> So it's like the sheer idea of doing work helped constrain the idea in a a new way. And so I think there's some power to that as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, that we encourage the early engagement of those ideas outside of you thinking in your head, (laughs) all of it yourself. Because I think as soon as you start engaging other folks, you immediately start opening up other questions you hadn't thought about, other resources, other networks that you hadn't started to explore. And it could quite frankly, accelerate that idea if you just talk to one or two people and say, hey, yeah, Joe in our company, he's already been exploring that particular area. Once you talk to Joe, you know, and that would have never happened if you just kind of sat in your own garage thinking through the things until you had the perfect plan to then talk to people about.
0: Yeah. And the longer we sit with something, the more we fall in love with it. And then it becomes, to your point, we had to figure out which ideas we're
1: going to kill. And the more we're in love with stuff, the harder it is to kill them. And we encourage that one-minute time again, just to get in the habit of exploring. You know, looking for oddities, looking for opportunities, looking for problems, and again, put it on your list. Uh, some of those will you'll never go back to again, but others will naturally kind of percolate to the top um, when you start seeing it over and over again, or when it starts, you know, getting you excited about moving that idea forward or solving that problem.
0: Yeah, I had a mentor who was probably one of the most innovative thinkers I've ever met. And he carried around these little rodeo um, notebooks, the little tiny ones that would fit in this um, shirt pocket. And he would fill those things up like – I don't like within a week he'd have it filled and it'd be just like idea after idea. And they were all like valid businesses. (laughs) And I was like, man, I don't know how you come up with it. It's like a muscle, just like anything else. The more you practice it, the better you get at it.
1: Well, and my bet is he probably didn't start out with full fledged business ideas. Like by the time you saw the notebooks, but he probably started out with, Hey, that's an interesting problem I see every day. Or, you know, what asking questions of why does that happen? Those are the things you can put in the notebook to start building that, that muscle and at, at some point, like you said, maybe you get to the point where the ideas that, that start to resonate are full-fledged business ideas that you want to explore.
0: Yeah, it's similar to a network, right? You've got mm-hmm. these little nodes of observations and ideas. And then once your brain starts making connections between them, then as you start to see new opportunities, now it's part of this web that you've created and you instantly make these connections, you're almost kind of coming up with solutions quickly, which like is Something we had to be watchful of, and I think why your one two three four approach is good because it also includes the customer curiosity, the research. Because we can't just let our internal web of concepts and ideas guide us, because yeah. that
1: can lead us astray, right? you Also, is, it, you reminded me some of the things that we run into a lot of times when we're teaching folks through this particular process is, you know, they'll come up with a problem, and they'll pitch me a problem, and they'll say, "This is a problem for Nelnet, so we need to solve this," but The real question is, what's the pain point for the customer? Like, this is great for our business if you can solve this. Like, we'll get more revenue or whatever. But does the actual end customer care about it? Uh, And so really understanding who has the problem and then uh, how big a pain point is and kind of um, nuancing that out. I think a lot of times in corporate environments, we try to solve problems for our company, which may or may not be problems for the market.
0: Mm. Yeah. And what's the actual economic impact of making the change? Yeah. Because even if it doesn't impact the customer, there could be economic impact because, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, let's let's face it, there's lots of issues with culture these days and people feeling like they are burnt out or whatever issues. There's a litany of things, right, that um, people are feeling and uh, leaning into fixing some of those problems might improve quality of work and attitude and connectedness in that allows people to to do better work for the customers. So I think it can go both ways, but we still have to, ideally we're quantifying it in some way so we know that we're placing our bets strategically.
1: Well, and again, looking at who, you can solve multiple problems sometimes by going down a particular path and knowing who you're solving the problem for and what are the things that you have to solve to make that ecosystem work.
0: I'm curious if you have any non-obvious stories where, you know, someone, an innovation story where someone was doing something and uh, and creating something in the world. And it was like, that seems a little odd. And then it turned out to just have disproportionate value. Yeah, you
1: know, I can talk through a couple of different instances where things have serendipitously kind of, you know, bubbled to the surface. One of the uh, things that we've been implementing at NowNet, we, we've been moving into the solar space. And so we got connected into solar space because we were doing some financing in and around solar projects. So we we would do it strictly on the fact that we could finance these particular build projects and we could get some tax credits for it. And you know, as we just did those financial transactions, we learned more and more about that particular business. We learned the players. And then we started saying, well, there's other things we can do in this particular market with other business units that we have that could add value and and create new opportunities. So, you know, we started with one little Nugget solving a, 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 a little problem in the in the space and then realized, well, there's these tangential things that we could build on. So now we've spun up a community solar division where we're not only financing these projects, but we're the company that can go in and help market these solutions into communities and uh, provide the call centers and things along those lines and kind of service those solar communities as well. And so we would have never found that out unless we had taken a little bit and then being curious around that particular space to say, where else can we add value? And and what other pain points are we seeing in the marketplace that we could actually solve for that? So those are, again, this idea of incremental betting and incremental innovations leading to bigger innovations uh, as you you know work through it.
0: That's a really solid point. And I think it's really important to underscore because so many folks look at the hard ROI or they're thinking, hey, how do I account for this? Or we were just talking about quantifying a moment ago. And sometimes it's about the learning. Like if we know if we go do this thing, mm-hmm. we're going to get some insights about a new space or about a new kind of customer. or And the learning has value in, in and of itself, not outside of any revenue. There's future revenues that could come from those insights we gather. Absolutely. You know, there's a reason why people hire research teams, right? And there's no reason... <laughs> There, there's other ways to research and get insights than just to run a survey, right? Or do market research. You can yeah. you can stand things up. You can you can
1: create prototypes and, and see how the world responds. Yeah, you know we've had examples of a number of different ideas that have come through the one two three four process that aren't really net issues. But you know an associate says, hey, there's this one area that they were looking at vertical farming. Like this is a pretty interesting space. So they brought it to the team to kind of engage with it for two hour kind of discussion around vertical farming is this something that Nelnet would will get into and it's like okay what are why what might we get into it well we have real estate so we have unused real estate is there you know some opportunities around that we're really good at financing okay can we do that and you know we ended up saying it's it's really not in our core in that but it, it opened up the conversation of like how could we get into this particular space or why should we or why should we not get into the particular space and just having those conversations i think it's just good to flex those muscles and then that individual associate who brought that idea both feels validated, as well as they know that they can bring the next idea to the table and, you know, have success with it. So it's about building this muscle of success from failing, (laughs) from going through the process and realizing, well, that didn't work. But now I have a better idea of what questions to ask and things I should be looking at for the next idea that I decide to put through the process.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. It, It reminds me of some of the core foundational rules of brainstorming, And we don't have to limit those to the confines of a moment where we're doing a workshop. We can bring those into how we explore options in general. And certainly, I mean, I've heard crazy stories of, you know, banks in South America opening up health centers. (laughs) You know, it's like, (laughs) why is a financial institution getting into health? And it's because they had real estate and they had customers that had a need and they could finance it and make it happen. And, you know, sure, they had to hire experts to stand stuff up but it doesn't mean that uh that they they couldn't make it happen and they did and i think that uh i mean you look i mean amazon's a classic story of this right like you know you go back i don't know 25 years and and say amazon's going to be getting into you know renting servers you know people would look at you like you're crazy like that seems <laughs> like a totally unrelated field but they took a, a capability that they had that they knew yeah. they could scale to market so i'm curious about adoption and how you've seen the most successful folks behave and, and, and how they encourage and celebrate adoption or what are they doing to make sure that, uh, that people actually do the stuff? Because there's a difference between the knowing and doing That's like the classic consulting phrasing, right?
1: Well, and it's a classic struggle that you're always going to have competing against the, the things that you should be doing or, and the things you know you're being incentivized to do already versus the new and unknown that may or may not provide value immediately and so we're constantly wrestling with that and and you know I don't think we have any you know again silver bullets around it but again the more we can educate our employees about this incremental approach and the more we can again provide a, an environment of what's the mindset around this so it's 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 not necessarily again you've got to come up with the the light bulb but having the mindset that anybody can be an innovator within the organization and everybody has a role and a responsibility to innovate, to, to find problems, to see opportunities, to and then to bring forth those. You don't have to be a founder uh, in the organization. You can, you know, still add value without having to, you know, build a business around it. And so I think that's part of it is again setting the stage around that and then giving both permission and resources To those ideas that are showing progress. Those are the biggest things that I think, uh, you know, adopting this kind of side project mindset, (laughs) to a large extent, where people are allowed to try and and test things, starts this overflow to other areas of the business as they start learning and building up this muscle of innovation.
0: You know, the thing that comes to my mind are the internal case studies that can be so powerful. You know, when yeah.
1: when someone is
0: successful, how are we celebrating and amplifying that? So I'm kind of curious what you found to be successful to get the story out.
1: Uh, that's a great point. And it's quite frankly, one of the ways we started to try to identify some of the, what we call the curious and the restless within the organization, the ones that are more inclined to to, to take the first bet and, and do more innovative things. So we developed a program and we leveraged this off the stuff that we learned in the startup Ecosystem. Uh, we leveraged a program called uh, One Million Cups. So if you're familiar with this, this is a program that came out of the Kauffman Foundation about eight or nine years ago, where I think over 100 cities now, an entrepreneur gets on stage every Wednesday morning uh, in their community and talks about what they're building and, and the community can ask questions and kind of give guidance and help. So he said, what if we took that particular concept... And applied it internally to our own company, because we have multiple divisions, 9,000 employees, and a lot of things that just people don't know are, are going on within the organization. So we said, we're going to do this once a month, we're going to call it Spark. And we're going to give the stage to somebody in the organization that's building something new or, or creating something that we think is kind of unique, that we could kind of highlight. And so we started this off, and um, now it's been going on for four years. And uh, every month, we get a new person on stage. Uh, And what we found is, one, it helped us identify those curious and restless folks, because if if they kept coming back to these kind of non-required conversations about things that are outside their own business unit, those are the types of people that are curious and, and more likely to want to find those collaborations. And then secondly, just by having that, it allowed a framework and a platform for more conversations to take place across the different business units, because it's like, oh, yeah, that's kind of interesting. We're doing something similar over here. I would have never seen it because I was siloed in my business unit, but just being exposed to new things within the organization allowed those collaborations and that to happen. So we thought that was a great, great way to both identify some of the innovative people within your organization. And then again, give a platform to tell those case studies. And we've had spark uh, events where it's been, here's a failure story. So-and-so tried this. Uh, It didn't work, but here's what they learned from it. And so again, seeding different stories with, it doesn't have to be a success to get on stage. It's just, here's what we're learning. Here's the new things that we're doing and building the muscle from that.
0: You know, I think that failure story is really key because if you're trying to incentivize people to behave in those ways and all they're seeing are people being successful, that could be pretty scary, right? Like, yeah. am I going to, am I going to fail? Am I going to, can I live up to, you know, Susan,
1: she seems pretty awesome, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Well, and that's been – those are the hardest stories to find and get people comfortable with getting on stage to tell mm-hmm. because, again, we're – I mean, like every organization, we're a metric-driven, results-driven organization. And, and uh, you know, you almost have to change the framework of what's the result. You know, the result was, yes, this particular idea didn't go the way we initially expected it, but here's what we learned along the way, and here's the value in that particular process, even though – that particular business idea or that particular project quote-unquote failed?
0: You know, again, I think it comes back to incentives and KPIs like what we're tracking because even back to the guitar example, it's like if we set some interim goals and we accomplish those goals, but then it turns out this project, it doesn't have legs, we can still point back to those interim goals and what we learned along the way. Mm -hmm. But if we're not setting them or tracking them, then it's really hard to
1: identify it in the rear. It's like looking back and hey, what did we learn? (laughs) Right? Well, and I think the other thing that people oftentimes don't realize, especially if you haven't been in like in the venture world or in the startup world, is like you need a ton of ideas. Like you can't pick the winners at the very beginning, so you need to have a, a lot of ideas coming through the funnel, uh, and and moving them you know through that. If you expect to say, okay, we're going to pick five winning ideas uh, at the onset, and that's the only thing we're going to fund, and that's the only thing we're going to work on, well, pr- good luck. Some of them may get to the point where they you know, uh, move the needle, but for the most part, uh, you know, early stage ideas that are going to be groundbreaking are going to fail, and so you have to have a lot of ideas that you have to pull off the table and and work through the process.
0: Yeah, you know, taking the adventure analogy a little bit further, you know, there's a couple of elements that I think a lot of people miss, which is that's that startup that seemed like an overnight success. Yeah. They were doing it for 10 years before you even heard about them, right? Yeah, exactly. And then the other thing is. VCs and have a giant portfolio. And you know, they they assume that maybe only ten uh, percent if that succeed. And that's why they're looking for like 10x like returns and stuff. Yep. And then you take it another layer further, the startups each of those startups in their portfolio has tons of ideas that they're trying out and testing. Right. And so, if you're really thinking about a portfolio approach, you got to replace a number of startups as well as all the ideas that each of those startups are having. So a corporate—that's what the corporate's competing against.
1: Yep. And of course, you can de-risk these ideas. Like again, not everybody's trying to build the next flying car. Uh, you know, the ideas that are coming out of your organization that are closer to your core. Uh, you know, more. Uh, uh, directly related to the things that you're doing, you know, with your existing customers, et cetera, are going to be, uh, by default, you know, more known, uh, and so you can typically move those ideas faster through the process, because there's more known and there's less you have to kind of research or 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 dig into, versus the ones that are more kind of transformational or outside of your your core business, but the process itself works well for either either or.
0: Yeah, and the other thing I'll say there is the company that launches the flying car is not the only company that's going to benefit from the flying car industry. Right. So part of innovation is being uh, aware of what's happening, what's coming in the future and thinking about what's our place in that world and how do we have a seat at the table and how do we even prepare for it? Because there could be adjacent things we're doing today to research to products we're launching to kind of hedge in that direction. To me, when I hear innovating at the speed of change, those are the types of things I think about, right? How do we evolve and stay relevant?
1: Well, and I think that's, I mean, I wrote the book Accelerated for that per- purpose. And I start out the book talking about, you know, these change accelerants, because I think, you know, 15, 20 years ago, you could build a business and you could milk that business for 20 years and not really be disrupted. And and disruption to me is not just your business is going to go out of business like Blockbuster. You know, disruption is, hey, we just had a pandemic. Everything we thought about the way we you know work with our employees and how we deliver businesses is, is changed, and so it's not just you know again these disruptions where you're going you're to go out of business or that the, the existing business model is going to go away. It's all these things that are changing the way you have to adapt to the marketplace, and so we've got to get better at that. You know, regardless of the industry you're in, regardless of who you are in the organization, you have to start becoming more willing and able to live in this world of uncertainty and all these change accelerants, whether it's technology or access to capital or access to markets, business models, et etc, are going to accelerate that particular process. So what are the things that you can do, both you know individually or as a team or as an organization, to become more adaptable, resilient, resourceful uh, in the face of accelerating change? So let's think about that for a moment
0: and for our listeners, if there's one key takeaway, from the book, one key lesson or tool or thing for them to keep in mind? What is it? And what should they be, if they're going to pick up the book today, what should they be looking out for? What's that key insight? Yeah.
1: Well, again, I think the pace of change is accelerating. You you need to start preparing for it if you aren't already. And there are things that you can do that, uh, again, you don't have to come up with the next uh, flying car, but you have to build some of these tool sets and skill sets uh, around it. So, being more curious, being optimistic, being resourceful, being resilient, be customer-oriented. You've got to actually take action on your ideas. And then I think uh, one of the ones that's often overlooked also is this is a collaborative process. No one can do it alone. Nobody can build a a brand new product or take an idea to its fullest extent without help from others. And so building in that collaboration and, and network around you is so vitally important. So, what I wanted from the book and, and the work that I do every day, whether it's the podcast or newsletter, is to get people better prepared for this and realize that anybody in the organization has the ability to, to be an innovator.
0: Yeah, it's interesting the point you made around it being collaborative. And I think that's also a nature of the fact that you know with this acceleration, we're, we're operating in a much more complex environment. And so, you know, simple solutions don't really work anymore. And so we had to create something that is impossible to create alone. So I'm curious, like, I think the one, two, three, four is an idea of how you lean into the personal capabilities and, and work, but also spells out some collaborative steps I'm curious if there's other tips you have for folks of how to improve collaboration or how to utilize it in a meaningful way. Rather, Because I think it's a word that gets thrown around a lot,
1: but how are, sure. how, are,
0: how do people really do it?
1: Yeah, so if you think about what I kind of call the three engines of innovation, one is exploration and, and getting better at, you know, surfacing ideas and seeking and gathering new information. The second engine is engagement, and that really is around how do you start taking that idea and, and kind of, molding it and usually it revolves around talking to people and that's first of all mapping your network who's in your network that may have insights that you could uh, use to further this idea then if you don't have folks in your network well how can you grow that network you know who are the areas that you should reach out to i think a lot of people underestimate uh, adjacent or uh, or networks that are not in their core so i think a lot of people Especially in corporate environments, focus on the industry that they're in and the competitors that they work with on a daily basis and the customers they know versus looking at adjacent industries or, or other industries and saying, what can we learn from, you know, banking or what can we learn from whatever other industry that you're in? And then map those networks, you know, try to figure out Are, am I deficient in particular ways? Are there ways that I could expand my network and expand my learning quickly by, you know, tapping into a, a new group that I haven't been a part of before? And then I think one of the biggest collaboration efforts that I think is overlooked or not uh, utilized to its fullest extent is your customers. Uh, because quite frankly, the more we engage with our customers, the more we know them, not for just what we do with them on a daily basis, but you know how they live and other problems that they have, the more likely we are going to be to able to find those problems and then hopefully solve those problems for the customers.
0: I love that. When I was a, a very young man, went to a a workshop, training seminar. And I remember walking away with this one little tidbit of information or advice, which was uh, once a year, pick a conference that's completely outside of your domain and go to it. And I I think there's so much to be learned by these adjacencies. And, in fact, it's my favorite form of innovation, which is exaptation. When we go and we find something that someone else invented and they're using somewhere else and we bring it into our industry – I mean, we didn't even have to create it. And it's like we're just right. like reuse it in some way.
1: And you look like the hero because you came up with the quote unquote came up with this you know, brand new idea that no one had seen before.
0: <laughs> That's right. That's right. How are people using blockchain in agriculture? I don't know. You know, it's like what <laughs> exactly. are the what are these intersections that aren't being explored? It's like super powerful. And you can even do that without going to conferences. You just just make a matrix. You know, just on one one column, think of one set of things. And on on your rows, think about another set of things and start looking at those intersections and go, what seems odd?
1: Or might there be opportunity here? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, listen to different types of podcasts, things like that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's such a wealth of information available. It's like, how do we pick and choose, right? (laughs) Amazing. Well, Brian, it's been such a pleasure chatting today. And I want to give you an opportunity to leave our listeners with a final thought.
1: Yeah, well, I, thank you for having me on the, the show. I, I love coming on these because I love meeting new people and, and having conversations around this. It's something that gets me excited every day, something I've been you know doing for a long time and, and excited to share what I've learned and learned from others. So I encourage people to keep the conversation going. Uh, feel free to reach out to me in, on LinkedIn or Twitter if that still exists by the time this actually uh, this airs. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, yeah, I'd love if people pick up the book and, and share their thoughts on that as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I highly encourage everyone to grab the book. It's really great. And also check out the conference, Brian. You do a great job there in Lincoln. And Nelnet is uh, uh, lucky to have that as part of their innovation story. Can't uh, say enough good things about it. And it's been a pleasure chatting today. Yeah, thanks, Douglas. We'll see you again soon. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. If you want to know more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about radical inclusion, team health, and working better. Voltagecontrol.com.